And welcome, everyone, to the Department 12 podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Ben Butina, and I am joined in this episode by Dr. Joe Jorgensen. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Jorgensen is a senior lecturer in psychology at Clemson University. Uh, however, the reason that you're on the show is that you are running for president of the United States. So my first question for you is, how did a nice IO psychologist like you end up running in a race like this? Yeah, exactly. Um, I do have uh, some more degrees than the uh, other uh, people who are running for president. So we'll see how that plays out. But no, I, I guess the assumption is, am I a nice IO psychologist? <laughs> uh, and, and let me point out, in South Carolina, I'm not allowed to call myself a psychologist. But had I been in my home state of Illinois, I could. So uh, there's debate as to whether I am an IO psychologist. <laughs> uh, amen. It's the same in Pennsylvania. <laughs> oh, are, are you allowed to call yourself a psychologist? Uh, if you go and get the license, which is geared towards mainly towards clinical psychologists, you can. Exactly. Uh, you. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about your background. Uh, you did you did mention that you have a few more degrees than the other candidates in this race. And I noticed that you got your uh, undergraduate degree in psych from Southern Methodist University. Uh, the next year you went back for an MBA at Baylor. And then 20 years pass and you decide to go back for a PhD in IO psych. So why did you do that? I love psychology. And by the way, those colleges are flipped, but yes. Oh, sorry. I, yeah, no problem. I had always, well, I loved psychology. And what's funny is that when I, I, I started out as a biology pre-med major and they made me take psychology as some kind of gen ed course. And in fact, what's funny is that is the only used book I bought. Uh, back then, textbooks were a lot less expensive because the federal government hadn't gotten involved. And so my reaction was, ah, oh, psychology, astrology, whatever. Okay, fine. I'll, ta I'll take your little uh, astrology course and I'll buy a used textbook. Oh my gosh, when I, I fell in love with it. And what, what really clicked was when my intro professor told us about a study in which doctors and nurses at a hospice type place were asked to give prognosis, um, the prognosis of different patients. And the nurses looking at just cheerfulness and optimism, they were better able to predict who would live and who would die than the doctors. Oh, wow with other blood tests. And I thought, wow, if the brain is that powerful, that's what I want to study. So um, I switched my major to psychology. And I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to go back to school. And finally, the timing was right with the, I was, I ended up in the kind of the buggy whip industry in the 90s, mm -hmm. which treated me well while it lasted, but I knew I needed to um, get back to where I wanted to go. Okay. Well, I'm going to jump back to the buggy whip job uh, in a few minutes, but uh, would you mind if I ask what your dissertation was on? Oh, it was on peak end theory, although now they call it peak end rule and uh, motivation. Okay. So I have to ask, uh, most of my listeners, uh, at least the ones that have PhDs, will probably say that writing a dissertation was the most grueling thing they've ever done. How does it compare to running for president? I think more grueling. I think the dissertation was worse. Yeah, I joined the ranks of everybody who says, you know, my kitchen never looked cleaner. It's like anything to do to keep from working on the dissertation. So absolutely. 
All right. So being president is a job, and we like to think of running for president as a job interview, sort of the world's strangest uh, job interview. But I think yeah. being a candidate is a job in itself and, and like a separate job. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. In fact, that's what I tried to get across. And, and you know, for the IO psychologists out there, I actually understood, if you don't mind my veering off a little bit, I, I actually understood the concept of, uh, or, or, yeah, the, the concept of construct before I went back from my doctoral degree. Uh, when I was watching MTV in the 90s, and they would have the top 10 video countdown. And I thought to myself, okay, are they really counting down the top 10 videos? Or are these just the top 10 songs and they're showing the videos, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that question was answered when in a top 10, uh, top 10 video countdown, they came to Journey and they said, Journey did not uh, do a video for this song. And I felt completely ripped off because I said, <laughs> wait a minute, you are not doing the top 10 videos. You're doing the top 10 songs. That's entirely different. So yeah, when it came to running for president, I tried to explain this concept uh, when I was running because a lot of people would ask me, um, what, what do you have in management experience? Uh, you know, what, what's the largest company you've ever run? Because you're going to run the United States. And now I do have Ed Clark's answer from 1980, which mm -hmm. is if I could sit down around the kitchen table of every American family in this country, I would win overwhelmingly. You know, if, if I could explain the Libertarian Party principle, we would win overwhelmingly. However, since the Democrats and Republicans have a stranglehold on this, uh, the, the chances are less likely. And so I tried to explain to people that my job is actually running for office as opposed to holding office. But another IO thing, I also tried to explain that experience is overrated, <laughs> that, <laughs> um, that I know that from my IO studies. So I'm glad that you agree with me that this is a job. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious about the job. It's because it's the kind of job that most IO psychologists are never going to come anywhere near. Yeah. What do you think we're most likely to be wrong about? So we all have a naive image of what it is to be a candidate. What do you think we mostly get wrong about that? You mean from an IO psychology standpoint? Uh, I think just from like a, a regular Joe naive person who sees you on TV or hears your interview on a podcast or a radio show and they think they know what it's like to be a presidential candidate. Like, what is it that we don't see? What is this job actually like? Yeah. Wow. That's a really good question. I think it's like a lot of jobs in the public where they don't see the iceberg underneath all of the work, all of the many hours and hours of reading, of preparing. Uh, it's it, it would be great to come out and very glibly answer uh, questions, but it takes a lot of work. And also... I've got a wonderful team behind me, and we've started doing briefing sessions, which is great. So it's not, you know, little old me sitting there reading my computer or reading the newspaper. It's a team of people discussing issues and what's the best way to, um, to present it. So mm -hmm. I'm very grateful to them. They do a great job, and it makes me look better. So, yeah. so it's, a, it's a team effort. Yes. And, and there's daily briefings. Could you just like walk me through at a high level? What's a day on this job like? When do you start? What are you doing? When does it end? Well, I start a little later than uh, 
probably most candidates because I start with my daily briefing at 10 a.m. The the good thing about having me as an instructor at Clemson is I'm a night owl. So I'm emailing students back and forth one, two in the morning, the night before a test answering questions because that's my normal, that, that's my normal uh, schedule. So uh, we start with the briefing at 10 o'clock in the morning. And sometimes I have uh, candidate work where we go over past videotapes, see what I did right, see what I did wrong. And I can have up to like Monday, I think I had nine interviews, nine different podcasts. And then I also had meetings on top of that. So it was pretty much, you know, a 14 hour day because uh, it, it, it on the calendar, it looks like there's a lot of time, half hour podcast, half hour off, half hour podcast. But then by the time you answer emails and all of that, it really adds up. And I would say the other thing that maybe people don't realize is we do need to keep the campaign going. And so I do call um, influential people in the party, ask them for their help, ask them for their donations. So that's part of being a candidate. Uh, so uh, something you said caught my attention because one of the things I've done uh, in my career is is public speaking training or presentation skills training. And we, you know, do the usual thing of, you know, videotaping or or whatever it's called now that we don't have tape anymore, yes. <laughs> <laughs> video recording someone. And then we go through their tape and, you know, we show them what they did well and what they didn't do well. And people hate it. They just yep. like, they fear it. And I wonder after doing so many of these, does it still hurt or you just not care anymore? Oh yeah. No, I hate it. I hate it. I, in fact, finally, um, my communications director said, okay, for our meeting today, we are going to watch a tape. I don't care what you think. So yes. And, and the funny thing is I teach the large auditorium classes, you know, Mm -hmm. to 250 students. And so I think, well, I've got all this experience, uh, talking in front of groups, you know, what problem do I have until I look at myself on tape? And then I realize, yes, but but (laughs) what's really been different with this virus is I'm doing a lot of things, uh, of course, through my computer, just as I am with you. And so it's a different medium. So I, I, where I might look okay in person with larger hand gestures on the computer, it might come across a little different, especially with the depth of field. I want to return to this idea of the candidate as a job for a minute. Mm-hmm. If you were training someone to do this job, so I don't know, maybe you're a consultant, uh, you know, 20 years from now and you're coaching the, the libertarian candidate at that point, like what skills would you emphasize for the candidate? What do you need to be good at to do this job well? I think in some regards, you pretty much have to be fearless. Because you never know what situation you're going to get in. You never know what questions you're going to be asked. You never know how many people you're going to be talking in front of. In fact, I was the VP nominee in 1996. And I spoke at a music festival. And I'm not sure how many people were there at the time. I know there were 10,000 total, I think, during the day. Uh, but it, it was you know, maybe 5,000 people. So, and I introduced a semi-famous band that had just appeared in a movie. So that was kind of fun. And uh, you just have to be ready for everything. But it's one of these things. Well, and and let me back up just a little. Here's what I think I, I, when we look at KSAs, and I normally don't talk, you know, I would never talk about KSAs on CNN, of course. (laughs) 
But I think teaching actually puts me in a good spot for this, especially for the libertarian party and the libertarian philosophy. So if you're a Democrat or Republican, and eh, no problem, we're just going to give you stuff, right? Um, with the libertarian party, though, we're, we are a little more philosophically oriented. We emphasize individual rights, individual responsibilities. We emphasize that people have the right to life, liberty, and property. And so a lot of times I have to take abstract constructs and turn them into everyday language and turn them into benefits. And with, uh, you know, the, the average American voter, you, you tell them, oh, the Libertarian Party, we're for freedom, we're for liberty. And their eyes kind of glaze over and they say, well, we're the freest country in the world. So what? So what I have to do is I have to take that and translate it into something that's meaningful to them. Mm hmm. I can see how teaching would be good preparation for that. And it makes a lot of sense that, uh, you know, rather than having, you know, for better or for worse, the sort of pre-digested uh, platforms that the majority of Americans understand or think they already understand about the Republicans and the Democrats. Right. I, I imagine you're talking to more people who are considering uh, voting libertarian for the first time. And so there's, there's an education piece to it for sure. Exactly. And there's kind of a sales about it. Yeah. Basically, I have to sell I have to sell the um the product here. And a lot of people say, well, but well, uh, the free market healthcare system obviously doesn't work. We need socialized medicine. And so I have to sell the people on first of all, explain that we don't have a free market system, but then also how our system is better. So in a lot of ways it is like just any other kind of sales. Yeah. Yeah, and this this actually mirrors uh, almost exactly so many conversations I've had uh with IO psychologists who, you know, even if they're not teaching, even if they're out there consulting, they're doing exactly the same thing. They're taking these uh, you know, these constructs and they are trying to develop them and communicate them in a way that is clear to the people they're talking to without talking down to them. So probably a lot of people can can relate to what you're doing on a smaller scale. And, and uh, you know what? Yeah. And, and let me just interject, if you don't mind. Consulting, I discovered, first of all, it's heavy sales up front, unless mm -hmm. you work for a large company that has a sales division. But uh, I, I, I do, um, my dissertation chair and I are business partners, and we do consulting on the side. Mm -hmm. So there's that sales up front just to have the company choose you. But then after that, because we go by data and not supposed common sense. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we can come up with something that sounds very counterintuitive. And you know, I remember one situation we were in where the HR manager was not happy with us at all. And she explained to us we did not know what we were talking about because and it was something to do with training. And you know, we we tried to explain to her what the empirical evidence said. <laughs> so so even after you have the job, there's still amount there's some certain amount of salesmanship just because you have to convince the person that your way is better, even though it might not seem that way to the outsider. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and that's something that I, I don't think a lot of graduate programs uh, prepare 
uh, folks for because you get so uh, involved in communicating in a certain way and in a sort of very academic way. And then all of a sudden now you're standing in front of some executives whose eyes are glazing over as you're. <laughs> oh, well, actually, and, and this is where my dissertation chair was always getting after me during the program and while I was in the program, because um, he said I spoke too much like a layperson, too much like a generalist. So what hurt me in the academic program is actually helping me in the real world and helps me with consulting because I actually do speak English. (laughs) (laughs) And you are uh, very good at thinking on your feet, just to pull back the curtain a little bit here for the listeners, about half of the questions, um, you know, I, I sent ahead to do a little prep, but most of these are uh, you know, most of these Joe's, uh, Dr. Jorgensen is hearing for the first time. Uh, so the responses have been just really excellent and, and very polished. I want to talk to you about leadership. You started your own company. You talked about it being in, in the buggy whip industry, which uh, I'll let you uh, go into a little more. But at one point, I understand you had about 25 employees. So you had your own company and you're leading this company. How does leading a, a campaign differ from leading a company? Well, the biggest difference is that with a company, you're paying people and they understand that if they don't do their job well, that they might not have a job uh, in a few weeks. And I'm not suggesting that you manage by fear, um, but there's always that little, you know, in the back of their mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, The campaign we're running has a lot of volunteers. And so it's very difficult you know, to say, well, you can't volunteer next week. And, and also so many people are doing this because it's their passion. And as you know, libertarians, we always have, uh, we, we always know the best way to do anything, right? Uh, Just ask us. (laughs) Each, each and every one of us. Yes. Each and every (laughs) one of us. And so, uh, and the, even though, even though there's the, the libertarian philosophy is somewhat narrow, oh my gosh, we've got so many people who fight to the death on mm-hmm. on on somewhat small issues, and so it's you know like they say, hurting yeah. cats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's more of a uh, a pure, I guess, form of leadership as we might talk about it as influence because there's no undercurrent, uh, you know, either implicit or explicit, like, Hey, this is a paid job. And I, and I know that I have to, to follow orders to some extent to keep it. Uh, you're really, you know, trying to inspire uh, people and motivate them, uh, you know, on their own, uh, abilities and their own desire to do it. Exactly. Uh, so how, if at all, do you think your, your training in IO Sykes influenced your political career? Um, I'm not really sure it has. Uh, because perhaps if I were a Democrat or Republican, it might, but as a libertarian, I still believe that people have the right to be stupid. And I have gotten some emails from IO psychologists in the field asking me, you know, haven't you read the book Nudge? Don't you know anything about uh, Kahneman and uh, Tversky? Because uh, we know that we can influence people by doing this and that. And my response is, but I don't want to influence people in that way. I don't agree with the system of having a few elitist people at the top who make decisions for everybody else. I think that, again, people should be allowed to be stupid. So um, 
I'm not really using that as, okay, I'm going to come in and make the system better. I'm saying I just want to take the power back from the government officials and give it to where it rightly belongs, the people. And the one book I think that influenced me the most was Animal Farm, where some are more equal than others. And uh, that just really struck a chord with me. And the idea that we've got a few people at the top making the decisions for the rest of us uh, really bothers me. Yeah, I actually, uh, I've read that book several times, just finished up uh, reading it with my uh, daughter, who's uh, my oldest daughter, who's reading it for school now. And it's, uh, Orwell was just such a fantastic writer and the images were so clear. And it's amazing after all these years, how much of it I remember down to the slogans and the songs and (laughs) it's, it's a a hell of a good book. So as we record this interview, uh, the biggest political issue in the country, um, at least from where I'm sitting, is is this issue of police violence and brutality. And among IO psychologists uh, on social media who are, you know, we're talking to each other. And the big question is, what can IO do to help? So I guess my question to you is, do you think IO psychologists can help the situation or is it more about policy and law to fix it? Well, I think culture plays a big role. And one thing that we know as scientists of human behavior is that human behavior does not have a single cause. And I go through this in my class. By the way, the class I love to teach the most is intro because it is just so very, it's a little bit of everything. So a lot of people look at it as just being influenced by other people, but they're not even thinking, geez, you're influenced by even hormones and genetics and uh, your conditioning from the past. There are so many different influences. And so I hear a lot of people on the radio, for instance, we just need to train those police officers better, or we need to hire, we need to hire people who aren't going to shoot people. And I think, okay, it's not that easy. (laughs) Um, Because you know, first of all, when when we look at Minnesota, and and I haven't looked into that particular state how they do things, but I would bet money that they've got a state police academy, as many states do. I believe that they probably receive the same training as most of the people around the state, and it's probably very good training. But culture just plays such a role, and the one thing that bothers me from a uh, government policy standpoint is, mm-hmm. of, of course, I don't like as a libertarian, I don't like the government and the federal government being where it doesn't belong anywhere, such as education, healthcare, and so forth. But in policing, crime is a local issue uh, assault, robbery, burglary, all, all of that. That's all a, a local issue, and it should be dealt with locally. The federal government really shouldn't be involved in that. And the police should have the attitude of, you know, serve and protect their community. But what the federal government has done is they have taken, again, our taxpayer dollars, and they buy tanks, grenade launchers, and all these other things, and then dangle it in front of these police departments. And you're here, would you like a free tank? And who's going to say no? We all all know how powerful the word free is. And besides that, the thinking is, well, geez, that's our taxpayer dollars. So I don't want the people in Alabama to get it. You know, I don't want the people in Texas to get it. So yeah, I want a free tank. But culturally, when when the government hands out, uh, when, when when the federal government basically militarizes the local police departments by giving them this equipment, giving them free training, giving them additional money, now the police have a different mentality and it's a different culture. And now they feel more like soldiers 
who are going into war as opposed to police. And if the federal government hadn't been uh, basically militarizing all these local police departments, I don't think we would see things ratchet up as fast as they do. Yeah, and I actually um, uh, read uh, a few studies recently, and just, you know, uh, it's a topic of interest of mine, uh, is that it, you know, reinforces everything you just said, which is that, you know, this equipment that's, uh, you know, this military equipment that you give police forces, it's, you know, linked to a militarization of, of the culture of that police force. Yeah. Uh, this, yeah, this is not a political show, uh, but I would be really stupid oh. not to ask <laughs> the next question, uh, which is this, uh, I haven't pulled my audience, but let's assume that, you know, they're fairly typical in terms of, of political distribution of, of the, of the population, uh, given the number of academics, I would guess it's probably left leaning, but mm-hmm. let's just say it's, you know, it's the national average for those who don't consider themselves libertarian. What's the case for voting libertarian? What's the case for casting their ballot for you and Spike Cohen this fall instead of Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Well, I I agree with you. Psychology tends to be left-leaning already, and especially social psychology, which I also teach, in which they did a poll, and I think it was like 800 liberals to like six conservatives. It was some outrageous poll. So I would speak to the people on the left and say, you know, the Democratic Party was traditionally the anti-war party. They were the party of peace. They were the party of of forgiveness, uh, the party of free speech. And now what you have does not resemble that at all. Tulsi Gabbard tried to make a great uh, speech, tried to make great inroads to turn our country more peaceful, and the Democratic Party shut her down. And a lot of people don't even realize that, for instance, Barack Obama and Hillary were both against gay marriage in 2012. And when I tell that to young people, their, their reaction is, what? <laughs> what? Why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because they're more interested in votes than in individual rights. And one of my top planks is to bring our troops home and turn America into one giant Switzerland, armed and neutral. There's no reason why we need to be everywhere around the world. And being in the Middle East is making us less safe, not more safe. And the irony here is that it's the military's job to protect us. So I would suggest if you want the type of peace that Tulsi Gabbard was trying to talk about before she was shut down, then please look at the Libertarian Party. We have been for individual liberty and rights since the 1970s. We wanted gay marriage. Uh, to be legal in the 1970s, decades before Obama was still saying it should be illegal. Uh, If you look at LGBTQ, just all all across the line, we have always been for the individual. So if uh, our listeners want to learn more about you and your campaign, what's the best way for them to to find out? Please go to joj2020.com. Again, that's joj2020.com. And what's really exciting is even from the first week of our campaign, we have had so many non-libertarian volunteers. It's just been, we we were just overwhelmed because usually when you start out with a campaign, you start out with your core supporters. But we started bringing in non-libertarians from the start. So we are just so ecstatic. And uh, even if you're not interested in politics enough to check out a candidate ahead of time, 
uh, I would appreciate your vote in November. And if you're at all for free speech and being able to have all, all voices heard, I hope to be on the stage with Trump and Biden. If anybody polls you, and we know how important polls are. <laughs> if anybody polls you, you can tell them that you might be voting or that you plan to vote libertarian. And if I can get to 15%, maybe I can get on that stage. And then we can have all voices heard, not just the people at the top, the elitists. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Jorgensen. I think this was a great conversation. I just I just want to thank you again for, for taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule to talk to your fellow IO psychologists. Yes. Well, thank you. And it's fun, you know, getting to talk about things like construct. I can't talk about that on <laughs> CNN. <laughs>